Welcome to episode 169 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Jessica Trillo. She served in the Navy. She wanted to be a military linguist in the Navy, but by a turn of events related to an issue around a security clearance, she got reassigned to aviation admin in the middle of her boot camp training. Surprisingly, the career field of being an aviation admin gave her opportunities to travel and to learn about how the Navy operated. She still wanted to become a linguist and eventually was able to cross-train into the career field, but she found that her time as aviation admin really helped prepare her to understand the Navy as a whole, something she wouldn't have experienced as a linguist. So even if you don't end up in the career field you want, it might be for the best. When Jessica left the military, she traveled for a year, and then when she wanted to get settled again, she found out about Savio Coding Boot Camp, and she took their boot camp. Savio has been a sponsor of the podcast for over the last six months and continues to support the podcast, and I'm excited to share a little bit more about what it's like to go through their boot camp courses. So if you're interested in learning more, keep listening. And thanks so much to Sabio for the ways that you support Women of the Military podcast. Women of the Military podcast would like to thank USA Girl Scouts Overseas for sponsoring this week's episode. USA Girl Scouts Overseas Virtual Troop is a great way for girls to learn new skills, meet girls from all over the world, and have fun no matter where they are or where they move. Adults can also volunteer with Girl Scouts, and it is such a great way for adults to continue to learn and meet new friends. Volunteering is easy and can be done by just giving seconds, minutes, or hours each week to help support Girl Scouts. USA Girl Scouts Overseas has many fun activities and ways to stay engaged for girls K-12 through and for their adult lifetime members. You can learn more about joining or volunteering with USA Girl Scouts Overseas by heading to their website, usagso.org. That's usagso.org. Women of the Military Podcast would also like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Savio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Jessica. I'm excited to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with why did you decide to join the Navy? Well, that's a, a lot. When I was in high school, I was dating a boy and... A recruiter called for him and I happened to answer and he said, listen, I'm not the type of recruiter that's trying to hound people. And I've called for him twice. And if he's not interested in joining, that's fine. Just let me know so that I can stop bothering you. And I said, I have to be honest, he's not said a word about it. So I have no idea, but I'll let him know. And he said, what about you? And what are you doing with your life? And I said, well, that's a good question. I don't really, I don't have any plans. And he said, do you want to come in and we can just talk. And I said, okay. So I took my sister and we went to the recruiter station. And I mean, we just 
had a conversation and I said, listen, military is not for me. I don't think I can handle people barking orders at me. It just doesn't suit my lifestyle. I don't think I'd join. And he said, okay, would you be cool? Like we could just hang out and chat, you know, whenever you have time, we'll meet up for lunch or whatever. And I don't intend on like trying to recruit you, but we can just talk and uh, you can ask me any questions since I already know you're not going to join and I'll be as honest as I would with someone I'm, you know, I'm just randomly talking to and you can just hear my stories. And I was like, okay, that sounds like fun. Well, it turned into me and my sister would go to the recruiter station and just hang out with them. Like, I don't know, once a week, once every other week, whenever we were bored, because of course there were always young guys there and they all had these stories. So we were just listening to what everybody said. And so finally, I think it was like a year later, I was like, okay, I think I'll join. Like, I don't have any plans. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And the officer that worked in the recruiter station was a pilot. And he said, you know, we were having this conversation one day where they all said what job they would have gone for if they had known what they knew then. And he said, you know, I think I would have been a linguist because as a pilot, there was a time where uh, there was this guy and he was a linguist and I would fly him places. And I don't know what he did, but I mean, it just seemed really cool. And I was like, learning a language would be really fun. That does sound like fun. So I told my sister, yeah, I think I'm going to join. Um, I want to be a linguist. And I convinced my cousin and my best friend. So we were going to just join together, the three of us. I think the day we were going to sign up was September 12, 2001. So once September 11th happened, my mom had a panic attack and was like, please don't go. You might end up going to war and, you know, panic as a parent probably would be. And I put it off. My best friend and my cousin were out. Like the moment that they saw that and realized the actual possibilities, they were like, I don't want to go to war. Like, but I let a few months pass and I, you know, I kept talking to my mom and I said, there's, if you think that this is the only time that it would have happened that I would have gone to war, like you're in the military, you're, it's expected that you are going to participate in some of that somewhere. But what ended up happening was I kept putting it off. And my sister, when she was going to graduate high school, she said, listen, you've been procrastinating. You've been talking about this for years. You're not going to do it. So I'm going to do it. I want to be a linguist. I'm going to join the Navy. Or she was going to sign up. And I said, okay, why don't we do the buddy system? We'll go, we'll sign up together. We'll go to the same A school. It'd be great. And she said, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to have everyone thinking that I made this decision because of you, because I'm making it and I'm making it first. So I'm going by myself. I signed up about two months after she did. Maybe it was like a month. So we were both in the delayed entry program and we were going to have to wait a year. And then, I don't know, maybe like five months passed and I was already starting to think about the reasons why I didn't want to go. So I talked to my recruiter and I said, listen, I don't remember what my sign-on bonus was going to be. I think it was like 12000 or something. And I said, look, if you don't send me soon, something is going to happen. I'm going to find a boy and I'm going to fall in love or I'm going to end up, you know, having a baby or I don't know, starting college. Something's going to happen and I'm not going to want to go anymore. And he said, well, if you're willing to sacrifice like 4000 of your sign-on bonus, I can get you out sooner. And I said, that's fine then. Let's do that. So I ended up leaving in October when I was supposed to leave the following year in May. So when I did basic, where they told me I, there was it was a civilian lady and I still hold a grudge. She told me, I don't think you're going to get a clearance. I had this, I don't know, it was, it was this really simple violation that was dropped because it was just silly. But she said, oh, no, this is it's going to be a bigger deal than you think it is. And I don't think they'll authorize you for a clearance. So I'm going to deny you as a linguist. So I had to get a different job. I ended up going into aviation administration. I mean, it was such a big deal. I 
because that was my intention. That was why I wanted to join. So I didn't know what to do before I like reclassed. I, I called my mom, you know, I was crying. And my mom is more resourceful, I think, than I had given her credit for at the time because I was trying to decide what I wanted to do. And she's like, come home. They told you that it was part of the contract. If they're not going to give it to you, just come home. And I said, well, I don't know if, you know, I already told everybody I'm already here. I don't want to go home. And then the next day, my entire chain of command all the way up to the CO pulled me into an office and said, listen, your mother's threatening to call the senators and all these people. She's called everyone in the chain of command, letting us know that if we don't send you home, she's going to the news. That's it. I was like, how did my mom figure out who these people are? But anyway, I decided to reclass and stay in and it was because my drill instructor told me, he said, look, I know you're disappointed, obviously, but if you go in, in one of these other positions in a year, you can request a cross rate, which is just transferring to a different job. And I said, okay, well, then I'll just give that a shot. You know, I'm here. I might as well go for it. So was this at the end of basic training? It was like probably straight up in the middle, like halfway through. So I had already done some of the basic training. I had already made bonds with some of the people. I was very excited about what I was doing. So I was really torn at that time, you know? So you were like halfway through basic training and then they're like, well, it doesn't look like you're going to get a clearance. So you need to get a new job. And you're like, what? Why? Why didn't you tell me this before I got here? Right. Oh, I was so angry. I even asked the lady, I said, um, can I speak to your boss? And she said, I'm the only one here that does clearances. So there's no one above me. I was really disappointed, but I ended up doing fine. I had found a program. Actually, my recruiter had told me about a program where, because I joined as an E1, and since I didn't f complete the delayed entry program, I didn't get that bump to E2. But he told me about that if I made it into the top 10% of like my, my graduating group that I could make E3. There was a program you could sign up and you'd be E3 out of basic. So I did that and I made E3 out of basic. And then when I went to my first school, which ended up being two months, instead of a year and a half. There was another program I found where if you made it into the top 10% of that class, you could apply for early advancement. So I made E4 in, I don't know, less than six months. So then I went to my first command, which was uh, a ship that was being overhauled in Newport News, Virginia. And they had everyone in the barrack. But the second that I pinned E4, I was eligible for BH. So then they just put me into an apartment, which was, I mean, obviously everybody wants to live on their own. So that was awesome. And you said overhauled? Yeah, they completely gut the ship. So it was uh, the Eisenhower. And so they, they take it to this shipyard, they gut it completely, and then they basically redo it all. So it, I would say it's similar to keeping the framing of your home, but then rebuilding the entire inside of it. So it was very cool to watch. I felt like a kid, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. We don't have water. So going to an aircraft carrier on its own was just a big deal. And then it's in a shipyard where they have these huge just cranes and all of these construction like machinery. And it, I, I felt like a kid on a playground, just, I mean, a very dangerous playground that you had to wear hard hats and watch out for everything. But it was so much fun. But I wasn't very happy my first year, I think, not getting the position I wanted. I didn't get the orders I wanted. I was second in my class. The only orders I wanted were the ones that they had to Italy. And of course, the person who got first picked Italy. So I ended up in Virginia and I had never thought about living in another state. So it wouldn't have mattered what state they had put me in. And for some reason, they had Japan, which to this day, I don't know why I didn't just choose Japan. But I was afraid. Like, I guess Italy 
seemed more, I don't know, since it's westernized, it felt like it wouldn't be so different. And Japan just seemed like it would have been a culture shock. So I was really scared to go to Japan, but but it didn't matter. Like I said, any state was going to be a big deal. I hadn't lived away from home. And Virginia was a little bit rough my first year. And my first office that I worked in just... It was it was tough for me, but I ended up transferring into a different office, and then I worked for uh, the division officer, and he was just amazing. It was me, him, so he was a lieutenant, and I worked with a senior chief, and we were the only three in this office. So I was running a department as far as administration went, and they were just great people. Like they cared about me as an individual, and they listened to what I wanted. And I told them, I said, what I want is to be in San Diego. My family lived in LA. I wanted to be at least near some family. It was the only duty station I knew of where I'd be close to family. And I said, I want to be in San Diego. I do not want to be in Virginia. Like no offense to people who love it here. I don't know anyone here. I don't feel comfortable. I'm lonely. And I told them, they said, well, you know, you just wait out your four years that you have here and then you can try to get orders over there. It'll be fine. Being that I was in administration, I had time to look through all the rules and regulations and I found so many things. But one of the things I found was called cross-decking in the Navy. When I told everyone this is what I was going to do, they said, there's no chance. You're not going to find someone because they have to be like the same gender and have the same exact amount of time left on their contract. And everybody had these opinions of what it was going to be like. And when I pulled up the regs, it wasn't that complicated. I had to find someone who had at least a year left. I had to find someone who was in the same position I was in and who was in within one rank of me and that wanted to swap spots essentially. So I was on the Eisenhower in the shipyard and I found the Reagan, which had just been commissioned, was about to sail to San Diego. So I just started messaging people from their office and said, hey, I don't want to stay in Virginia. And I can bet there's someone on your ship that doesn't want to leave Virginia. So can you see if there's any AZs that want to swap with me? And I found a guy. And so I ended up swapping. And my lieutenant told me, I know this is what you want, but you're going to miss me. And I did. He was amazing. So I went to my next ship, which the position I went into, I wasn't even an aviation admin anymore. They put me into weapons. So I was working in the weapons shop and I was, I think in our shop, I was one of three girls and I was the supervisor of the shop. I mean, that in itself was a challenge. Anybody that knows people in weapons, like in the Navy, they're AOs and they're a rowdy bunch and taking over a shop that was obviously male dominated, it was a challenge. But after a few months of getting used to each other and dealing with a lot of pushback, I ended up making a lot of really good friends. They're fun and loyal people and sailing around South America and not knowing anyone, every port we hit, you had to have a certain number of people that would be your buddy to go out into town. And our first stop was Rio in Brazil. And it was during Carnival and there was a lot of crime. So we had to have groups of nine people just to leave the ship. And I'm like, I don't even know nine people yet, you know? So basically I went with everyone in the shop. And I think that that may be what brought our connections closer so quickly because you get to see people, you know, in their natural habitat and having a good time. And so I made a, a lot of friends during that trip. That sounds really interesting. So you got to travel all over South America. Yeah, we did uh, Brazil, Chile, and Peru on the way over to San Diego. So it was a lot of fun. It was good times for sure. You were moving from Virginia to San Diego by like the ship. So did you bring all your stuff with you or how did your, or did they put it on a 
train and move it across the country that way? How did all your stuff get from Virginia? I don't know what they would have done, but what I know is is that I had no intention of staying in Virginia. So the apartment they set me up in was fully furnished, so I didn't have furniture. And all of my belongings stayed in my sea bag until I left. So I didn't even unpack all of my things. I had my uniforms that I would wear, and I had maybe one or two outfits that I would wear out if I went out because I didn't know people and I was a little bit worried about going out all by myself. So... I didn't really have to worry about any of that. I got my sea bag and I threw it on the ship and I'd left. I imagine they would have just done it the same way they do, you know, when you PCS, like just throw it on a box or boxes and have someone pick it up and ship it over. But yeah, they didn't have to worry about that with me. I was ready. Yeah, that's kind of a funny story because you're just like, I'm here with my suitcase. I'm ready to go. I was like the the little kid that has, you know, that has the bag ready and is like, no, I'm leaving. That's it. I can be a little bit stubborn. I'm headstrong. If I want something, I'll I'll push until I get there. It does take time sometimes. But yeah, I get what I want. They told you, oh, it's so complicated. And you're like, nope, I read the reg. It's right here. It's actually really easy. And so that's a good piece of advice is to like do your research and not just rely on someone saying, oh, that's too hard, or no, you can never do that. Oh, I have so many stories of that. I have a couple more that directly relate to me. And I do think that I was really lucky, actually, in being made an administration man before becoming a linguist, because working directly with just officers and senior enlisted, I had a very clear understanding of what they expected, because all the paperwork would come to me, and I'd have to get it organized and prepared for them to just look over and sign or not sign. So I knew kind of my limitations. The way that all the offices I worked in work is if it was in black and white, they wouldn't even argue with you. Once I saw that, I was just thirsty for knowledge. I would look through the regs for fun to see what opportunities there were because I didn't know what I could do. And I knew that even just knowing my options gave me that sense of control. So I looked up so many things and I helped everyone anytime. Like once I cross-decked, I had, I think I cross-decked three other people before I even left Virginia. And they would tell people, I, I even now, <laughs> I've been out of the military for what, goodness, like almost 20 years. I had been out for like 10 years and I had someone message me and say, hey, yeah, someone told me that you had done a package for cross-writing, for getting a different job. And I was wondering if you could help me. In the end, I ended up helping a lot of people get into different like enlisted to officer programs and things of that nature. So I would have people still years later, people I never knew, never met, but they just would work in an office with someone who says, oh yeah, you know, I know someone who, who did that or helped somebody do that. And I had on my computer, probably up until about maybe five or 10 years ago, all of the folders with all of the regs and all of the forms for each different program. So I could just send the whole folder and be like, here you go. Just read it over. This is what you need to fill out. These are the items that you need to put with it and send it up your chain of command. So I think being in administration was the biggest blessing that the Navy gave me that I was not grateful for initially. Yeah, sometimes it works out that way. You get put in a situation which isn't what you wanted, but then you learn from that situation and it helps you in your future career. So were you able to get the security clearance thing worked out? And then you said, oh, I got it fixed. Now I'm going to cross train over to linguistics. When we got into San Diego and I was in weapons, in weapons, we had to have at minimum a secret clearance in the shop that I was in. So I had to put in for that anyway. Well, once you have a secret clearance, it's not much more effort to move into top secret. So 
I went from weapons to a different shop on the ship, in the same ship, but it was an aviation admin. And I still had to stick with a secret. I was the person that was in charge of the clearance program for that department. So I learned how to you know, all the paperwork that you have to send again. So it was just another way of setting me up to know what the possibilities were. So when I found out that going from secret to top secret wasn't going to be that complicated, it was going to take time. So I put in to get a top secret clearance. The reasoning that I had for it was that I wanted to be a linguist and I had to have a top secret to be a linguist. And I had to have at least, goodness, it's been 20 years. So if I forget all the terminology, forgive me. You had to have some form of approval. Like it was a pre-approval saying, you know, we've looked over the basics and we don't see a reason as to why you wouldn't get a top secret clearance. So it's not, I don't think it was actually an interim clearance, but it was more just that approval. So I needed that before I could even apply to be a linguist. Again, I was in a great office. I had another divo that was just, he was so supportive. I still talk to this man and I've been out of the military for 20 years. I was only in for like three years when I met him. So we've known each other almost 30 years and I have yet to lose contact with him. He was just the best person I ever worked for. But I told him I want to be a linguist. And he said, are you sure that's what you want? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, well, just give me the paperwork. You know how it works and we'll send it on up. So once I got the approval that got a green flag for the clearance paperwork, I filled out everything for the cross-rating paperwork and sent that up. We then deployed and in the middle of deployment, they were like, okay, cool. We're going to give you this cross rate. So you're going to need to fly back to go to the language school. So I did half of my deployment and then I flew back to California to go to DLI, which that was just an experience in itself. I mean, for me, deployment was a blast. I did so many just amazing, fun, cool things because again, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to grow up. I'm a huge kid. I want to know what everyone is doing. I want to know, is there anything that I can be doing? So on deployment, when people were, you know, moping because they had to leave behind their girlfriends or their family or, or even, you know, just any of it, just being away from home, I was like, guys, being sad is not going to change the fact that we're going to be out here. So let's do something, you know? So I would go around and talk to everyone and I got to like repel with the EODs on the ship and, you know, in weapons, I got to shoot everyone weapon that we had, which was fun. And I found out that you could request to take a flight on different aircraft. And if you got approved, then you got approved. So it was like, you know, like roll of the dice. But I sent up for a, a helo ride and they gave me that. I think when I went to E5, they gave it to me. But so I flew around in the middle of the ocean on a helicopter. I mean, there was just so many fun things that I did. And then from there, I went to the language school, which I love DLI. That place was so much fun to me. If that could be my job forever, just to learn languages at DLI, I would love that. <laughs> the way that they teach you language, like if you put effort and you're humble enough to know that you need help, you'll learn the language. And when I applied for the school, I thought, of course, being naive, I was going to have a say in what language I got, which it's like anything else in the military. You give them, you know, whatever, your top five, and then you get the seventh one. So when I got there, they said... <sighs> Well, what language are you hoping to get? And I said, I want Chinese. And they said, oh, yeah, we just filled a class uh, for Chinese linguists. So that's not going to happen. And I said, oh, well, then I guess I'll take Spanish because I'm Hispanic and I should speak Spanish fluently and I don't. So it's only six months anyway. I'll take that class. And they said, yeah, mm, your, your DLPT score 
No, it is a D-Lab because it's ASVAB to get in. Yes. So the D-Lab is a language aptitude test that they give you just to see how capable they think you are of picking up certain levels of languages. So my level was too high for Spanish and they weren't going to let me do Spanish. So I said, okay, fine, whatever. And they said, how about Arabic? And I said, no, I don't want to do Arabic. I just am not, it doesn't sound appealing to me. No, thank you. So then they said, cool, you're starting Farsi tomorrow. And I'm like, what is Farsi? Where do they even speak that? Uh, I was very ignorant to geography and culture. And apparently back then I thought the Middle East was a continent or a country of itself. I don't know where my brain was at. I Forgive me, I was young, but it was still, again, the best thing ever. I loved learning Farsi. They have sounds that are similar enough to Spanish that, I mean, it was just a blast. Like I didn't feel a huge struggle with learning it. I was excited. The teachers were fun. It was intense for sure, but definitely a blast. So I, I showed up to the language schools in E5, left there. My first time up for E6, I made E6 at my, my next command. And the language school was interesting because most people going there are newbies. Like they came from basic to the school. So I couldn't even interact with half of the people there because I wasn't supposed to fraternize with the teachers or the staff. I couldn't fraternize with people who hadn't deployed yet. So I had like maybe four people I could even talk to at the whole command. So that was a lot of fun. But I had big Navy experience and they didn't have that. And even getting to my first command as a linguist, because linguists have a job that requires a top secret clearance and everything is need to know, you can't really tell people what you're doing anyway. So the stories I would hear from people who were careerists as a linguist that joined as linguists and then went to their commands, they didn't really get to deploy. And when they did, their deployments were nothing like what I experienced. And they were kept in the skiff and nobody knew who they were and they were flown different places. So they didn't really make connections and it was a different experience completely. So when I got to the command, a lot of these people, they weren't familiar with the way the Navy as an organization worked. And so it was similar, like how I was saying, when I went there, because I was e sick, I was no longer really going to be doing the work. I was I started managing people. I did the work a little bit for a little while, but then you know I just started managing different work centers, and so it wasn't as exciting to me as a school. But then I found that in managing people, I took on being a career counselor as well. So I had a, I was doing her evaluation, and she said, "So I'm going to get out." And I mean, she was the best linguist that I had, just like motivated and organized. And she was great. She said, I want to get out. I have a year left. And I said, is there anything that we can do to change that? Like, what is it that you want to get out for? And she said, well, I don't want to be a linguist. I want to go into the medical field. And I've expressed that to the command. And they've said that we are undermanned as linguists and that they wouldn't let me change my job to go into the medical field. And I said, so why don't you apply for an enlisted to officer program where you go into the medical field there? I mean, I feel like that might benefit you more anyway. I showed her all of the things that I had and she said, wow, I wish I would have known that before. I would have applied for it then, but now I only have a year left. And I don't want to find out three months before that maybe I had it. She would have had to have re-enlisted by then. And she said, I don't want to re-enlist or even extend in hopes of getting into a program that I may not get into. I've already been accepted into this university program. I'm just going to do that. So I started career counseling everyone in my work center. And I made it very clear to all of them. I said, look, I'm not trying to push you in any direction. I'm not trying to encourage you to stay in the Navy. What I want to know is what do you want in life, not just 
in the Navy? Is there a career field that you're interested in? Are you happy with what you're doing? Is there somewhere else physically that you would rather be? What is there that I can help you get to? What goals can I help you achieve? So you were helping people figure out their path forward either in the Navy or at getting out of the Navy. And it's also interesting because you said that you thought that you would love being a linguist. And then when you got into the job, you're like, I kind of liked my old job. I guess it really all did work out the way that it was meant to. Yes, it did. And I still got the blessing of going and learning this language that I think is beautiful. I still, I talk to people, They, I love it because Iranians and Latinos look similar, just features wise. So the moment that I speak Farsi to people, they're like, oh, you're Iranian. And I'm like, no, they always just think I'm a very tall Iranian woman because apparently Iranian women are all shorter and the culture is very similar to my culture as far as like being very family oriented. And I've been all around the world and I run into people who speak Farsi everywhere. So it's just been such a great thing for me. I took two weeks of Dari when I was deployed and the guy next to me, like he was like the superstar. He's like, I know Farsi. (laughs) It's so similar. Like most of the words are the same. And so it was really interesting to like talk to him and learn about the differences and the similarities between Dari and Farsi. I feel like Dari is like British English or like Scottish because you know like how the Scots have they speak English but they have a thick accent so sometimes you feel like you have to interpret it anyway and then they use words that you don't use on the daily so you're like yeah we're kind of speaking the same language but not really. Yeah that makes a lot of sense. Similar but also very very different. Uh Uh-huh. So you were doing that and what made you decide that you were going to get out of the military? So when I was there, I started dating someone and things got serious and he was Army, I was Navy. I was about to deploy because I had to re-enlist and they were going to let me. I wanted to do a year in Bahrain and then I would have gotten my choice of orders after. So I was going to be gone for a year and then a week or two before I was going to come back, he was going to go on a deployment. And being away from each other from you know 18 months to two years just didn't sound like something I really wanted to do. So we talked about it and uh, he had 14 years in and I had eight. And I was like, well, I mean, it obviously makes sense that I would be the one to get out because he's already close to retirement. So I made the decision to separate for my relationship and then we didn't work out. So that was fun. I definitely don't regret getting out. If I had not have met him, I honestly think I would have done 20. I loved my military time. What I loved most about the military, because I feel like people who complain about just the regular junk that you have to deal with, don't understand that or don't really acknowledge the fact that that you're going to have to deal with those things or something different as a civilian. Like there are downsides to either side. So, I mean, there are different circumstances. I'm sure there are extreme cases where, yes, the military is like, obviously, if you do not ever want to go to war or don't want to have the possibility of that, then sure, you probably should not join the military because regardless of your job, there's a possibility you're going to be put in a combat zone. So don't do it. But besides that, if it's like like how I was saying when I was young, if it's taking orders or whatever these ideas that you have, there are equivalents on the civilian side regardless. I mean, there are a lot of differences and the Navy had so many benefits. But what I loved most was that it was the first time I had worked somewhere where I could 
move around, change my job, you know, advance, change my location. And all of it still was going toward a retirement. Like that to me was just so interesting. I loved it. And then, like I said, knowing that to them, black and white was as good as gold. And if I gave them the regs and it said, I'm going to do this when I was a linguist, it was before I chose to separate. It was before I had gotten serious in my relationship and I was bored. I said, you know what? I want to be a pilot. So I started doing all the paperwork to be a pilot. And I told my department chief, I said, so I'm going to put in this special request to take off Wednesday. I have to drive to Charleston to take this test to be a pilot. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm going to put in for the enlisted to officer program to become a pilot. This is a requirement that I pass this test. So I need to take time off. Like it's only given on Wednesdays. I need to request time off for that day. And he said, you can't do that. I said, why can I not do that? He said, you can't go from being enlisted to being an officer while you're in. That's only something you can do as a civilian, like coming in. I said, that is absolutely not true. He said, I was E6. He was a senior chief. He's like, no, it is true. I said, no, as a matter of fact, I have the regulations. I can bring them over if you'd like. And he said, oh, I would love that. So I said, okay. So I brought him the regs. And as he read it, I just loved watching his face go from thinking that he was right to realizing how wrong he truly was. Because when we were arguing, I'm like, it's called enlisted to officer program. Why would you imagine that that would be for civilians? It's for enlisted people. And what really irked me about that was I thought to myself, how many people have you discouraged from doing something that would have maybe retained them so that you could just say that you're right or because you have rank. And that was that was something that I struggled with, I think, in the, in the linguist community, because a lot of, like I said, a lot of those senior chiefs, a lot of those master chiefs had never been anywhere other than being a linguist. And it is not the same. And they didn't get to interact with other rates or jobs, they were a little bit more close-minded and I had to fight for everything. But once people started hearing that I would do things like that, everybody would come to me and tell me, well, I want to do this, you know? So the new department chief, when he came in, was really excited about that. He ended up having me uh, invite him to all of them, which I made very clear before he started on the first one. I said, look, if you're coming here as a senior chief and you're going to try to make these people feel bad about wanting to get out, then I'm not going to do this because I want them to feel comfortable and I want them to trust me because I want to help them. And if you're going to make them feel uncomfortable, I'm not going to invite you anymore. And he was 100% on board and did the same. So then it was nice knowing that I had, at that time anyway, a chain of command that was willing to support me and all of these other enlisted well, and some of them were officer folks that wanted something else. You know, I even helped people that outranked me because I'm like, there are opportunities. Like, depending on what you want, I can help you. It might take time. It's definitely going to take effort. But what is it you really want in life? You know, so yeah, it was nice to to find that I did enjoy learning the language, but that I wanted to jump right back into administration, I guess. Yeah. So you ended up leaving the military because you were in a pretty serious relationship. He was in the army, you were in the Navy, and that never is a good thing. And you said the relationship ended up not working out. What was the transition to getting out of the military like? Well, because he was still in. So when I got out, he was at Fort Bragg. So I just went and was living in Fort Bragg. I think what we were there for a few months maybe like six to eight months before 
he had to PCS and we PCS to, there's a, a base out here in San Antonio, a smaller one, because he was also in the language community. So he got stationed there. We moved out to Texas. And because of all that moving, finding an, an actual career wasn't happening. I was trying to find a school. And then at least when we were coming to San Antonio, I knew we'd be here for a few years. I started looking at schools then. I think what, after I got out, it was like we were another year and a half and then maybe a little longer, and then we ended. So that was, I think, when it was tougher because it, we still hung out with everyone that was in the military. He still had, you know, all the military events. So I, it didn't feel like I had really completely separated. And then, you know, I didn't have to worry. He knew that I couldn't find a really good job while moving around. So I felt like he didn't hold that against me, which was great. So I didn't have all the pressures that people typically have when they separate, but I did when we ended. And that was when the reality hit me. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what do I want to do with my life? Because everyone kept telling me, you could go back to being a linguist and you can make good money. But I didn't really enjoy being a linguist. So I started trying to find jobs that I would fit into, uh, but I didn't know how to market myself. And honestly, if I had, I probably would have done really well, but I didn't feel confident in like setting up a resume for different positions because I couldn't figure out how to align with what I learned in the military with a civilian position. And so I ended up finding a job, my first like real job, career style job. It was just an admin assistant in a front office. And three days into that job, the COO came in and had a conversation with me and he's like, so I want you to be my executive assistant instead of that, which I'm like, cool. I mean, it came with a huge pay raise. So I was like, oh, absolutely. Yes. And then he he still made me interview and he said, okay, so why do you think you can handle this job? Which was a million times easier than ever having to decide what to put down on a resume because he asked me and I said, you just gave me all of the rules and responsibilities that this position requires. And I can tell you, I have at least eight years experience doing that. I was in the military working for department and divisional officers. I had to worry about, you know, so I just gave him the rundown of all of the things I did in the military and why it would make me such a perfect fit for the position. So I got the position three days after the first one and it was great. And I loved that job. I had so much fun. He was a tough person to deal with. He just, which again, I feel like the Navy prepared me for because my first office, the master chief I worked for there, who retired maybe seven or eight months after I got stationed there, he was just a horrible person. He was miserable. He just was unhappy and he was ready to retire and he was, he just rubbed me the wrong way. We did not get along. I was not happy with him. So this guy was uh, like similar-ish. He wasn't as bad, but he just was a difficult personality type. And I was prepared. I didn't have a problem with that. I'm like, that's fine. You can yell and get angry about things and I'm not going to take it personal. That's your personality. It's fine. And he had very high expectations. But the upside to that was that nobody else really wanted to deal with him. So everybody helped me in my job. I didn't have any worries. And, and I mean, he would throw things at me that I would never have expected to do, like, you know, acquiring a business, opening new labs. So I would be in charge of all this project management, getting everything done. And I, I loved it. It was great. But sadly, they ended up having to close. And for me, it was just another opportunity. So I'm like, well, what do I really want in life right now? And my little sister and I were talking about it. And she said, you always say you want to live in California. Why don't we just move to San Diego? And I said, 
how about we just travel the world? And she's like, what are you talking about? So I ended up convincing her. I had had some savings. We did the craziest, cheapest around the world trip. We traveled for a couple of years, honestly. Internationally, like a year and a half around the States for probably almost as long. And I kept justifying it because it was, that's always been my dream is just to travel. And I'm like, why am I going to complain? Like I can survive this way right now. And I don't have children. I know a lot of people who have children can't take those kind of risks, but I'm like, I, it's just me. And if I don't have anything, I'm fine. But then finally we start talking about again, what we really wanted. She's much younger than me. And she's like, well, I want to date and we can't date while we travel. So I said, okay, well, then I guess we're going to stop traveling. So we chose California. A friend of mine, an old Navy friend, she said, the company that I work for, we hire a lot of people from these coding boot camps. Like, is that something that you would be interested in? And I said, well, I did like computer programming in high school. I thought it was so much fun. I said, well, coding boot camp. Okay. So I looked it up and for me, I mean, of course it's, it says boot camp. So I'm like, yep, I like, I love condensed learning the way that I loved DLI, like I want immersive learning. I want it to be all day, nonstop until I know what it is that I need to do. So when I found it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is perfect. And we had left Texas and we're living in California. And I looked up schools and I found the only one at the time that would take the GI Bill was Sabio. They had a location in downtown LA and one in Irvine. And the idea of living in downtown LA, I could never do that. It's just too condensed for me. Didn't sound like a good idea. So we we took the course in Irvine and just moved out there until the course was done. And it was 100% like a the way you would picture basic training. Like you're just, you know, it was 12 hour days, five days a week. Saturdays was like eight hours and it's intense. It's It was such hard work, but it was so much fun. And we had the best group of people. And then I went into software after that, which when I was an E6 in the Navy, I felt like I was wealthy. Like from the way that I grew up, like I'm like, oh my God, I have so much money, you know how? And, and I remember somebody had told me that military people were rich and I'm like, what? No, we're not. But then as an E6, I was like, I mean, I have money to do everything I want. And then, of course, the security, because you're not at risk of losing your job and you know that pace coming. And so it, just that security felt like wealth to me. So I felt wealthy. And then I got my first job as a software developer. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so much more than I've made ever in the military. You know, so I loved it. I did software engineering for two years and then I transitioned into technical program management, which is where I'm at now. So I've been doing that for about, I don't know, a year, a year and a half. And and I love it. It's been fun. And I think just tech as a field reminds me of that feeling that I got from the military about being able to move around. I will always have a job. I can look in any city. I'm fully remote. I've been fully remote now for three years. So the, the flexibility I wanted, I have. I'm getting paid more than I ever even thought I could ever get paid. I just didn't even think it was possible. And I have the job security that I want. So anybody thinking about tech, I'm just saying doors are wide open. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing about your experience in the Navy and your transition out. But I want to end the interview with one last question, which is what advice would you give to young women who are considering military service? My advice to young women that are considering joining the military, I would say if you are thinking about it, four years is a short time to sacrifice for all of the benefits that you'll get from it. You get the GI Bill which has been a blessing to me. You get the experience. And I think what you get indirectly, like not what 
you're expecting, not the job that you're going for or the experience that you expect to get that doesn't teach you as much as what you're not expecting. Like I said, I think that my number one advice would be research everything. Don't take anyone's answer as a final answer because people will confidently tell you something that they know nothing about. But if you want something and you're willing to work for it, you can figure out a way to get anything you want. You just have to be willing to put in the time. You have to be willing to deal with the backlash of people being, you know, annoyed that you're not listening when they tell you that it's not possible. And and that's something that you should carry with you regardless if you join the military or not. Is don't don't let anyone determine what it is that you can do with your life. If you want to do it, find a way. There are ways always. Such great advice and a good wrap up to a lot of the things that we talked about in this interview. So thank you so much. Thank you. for listening to this week's episode if this is your first time listening to women of the military podcast i encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast there are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in joining serving leaving the military or just learning about the women who have served in the military If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military. And if you enjoyed Women of the Military podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service.